0: It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you as we are continuing uh, to take a closer look at this well-known story, or maybe we think it's well-known, kind of a surprising story, the book of Jonah. Because we believe that it's actually in the book of Jonah we learn what it means to truly have a relationship with the living God. And so I think it's only right that before we take a look at this story together that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your thoughts are indeed precious to us. And so as we come before your word, we ask, Lord, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive it. That you would teach us what it means to truly have a relationship with you and not simply to go on the basis of our own strength or our own wisdom, but to truly know you for who you are And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So over the years, as I've been teaching people how to read the Bible and to read Scripture, one of the things that I've often said is that if you don't find certain things in the Bible funny, you probably aren't reading it appropriately. Because there are things in the Bible that, yes, are surprising, other things that are shocking, other things that are confusing, but then there are things that are intended to make you laugh. And the reason why is because humor has a way of helping us reflect on things that otherwise might be too difficult for us to address. Humor has a way of bringing down our defenses and opening us up to the truth of what needs to be said in a way that we can actually receive it. And and that's important for us as we're looking at the book of Jonah because Jonah is written in a narrative style known as satire. Now satire uses things like humor and irony and extreme circumstances in order to make its point. And furthermore, by saying that Jonah is written in, in the narrative style of satire doesn't mean that this story isn't true, that it didn't happen. In fact, last week, Pastor Mark did a very good job of highlighting the fact that in this story, we do meet a real person, a person who lived at a, at a time and place, a person who had a career, a, a prophetic career, and who went to a city that was actually one of the centers of the ancient world. Jonah is a true story, but sometimes it's true stories that make for the best satire, because as we retell the story and we think about, well, what elements do we emphasize, what parts do we highlight, that the humor and the irony truly comes to the fore. In fact, if you were to look up the word satire in the dictionary, what you'd find is that it's the use of, it uses humor and irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and to criticize people's stupidity or vices. It uses humor in order to criticize and to highlight our vices, our stupidity, our foolishness. And oftentimes uh, that's why it's such a powerful tool is because otherwise we wouldn't want to look at those parts of our lives where maybe we've been a little bit foolish. We wouldn't want to see those areas of our life that maybe we're not uh, all that proud of. So satire has a way of kind of coming in under our defenses and saying this is important and worthy of reflection. And the book of Jonah is certainly that. Because Jonah is an ironic book. In Jonah, we meet a man named Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we learn that he's a prophet. But what's interesting about him as a prophet is that he's actually not a very good one. Because we meet Jonah in another place in the Old Testament. We meet Jonah in the the books of Kings. Where we actually find Jonah in the court of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was one of the worst kings in the history of ancient Israel. Although he was militarily very powerful, although he brought a lot of wealth to his country, he was also thoroughly corrupt, he was unjust, and he led his own people into the worship of idols. He was a bad king. And where we find Jonah we find Jonah serving as a court prophet, supposedly speaking God's word to Jeroboam. And and the one time we find him speaking to Jeroboam, Jeroboam is about to go uh, into battle, and and there's Jonah saying, well, the Lord is pleased with you, and so you're going to be victorious in this battle. But one has to wonder whether Jonah is saying that simply because he knows Jeroboam's track record on the field of battle, or whether he's actually received the word from the Lord. Because while Jeroboam goes into battle and is successful, there was another prophet who was also sent by God named Amos. And Amos comes to Jeroboam and says, yeah, you've been successful on the battlefield. And yes, you've brought wealth to our our nation, but you are corrupt. And because of your wickedness and injustice, God is going to bring justice upon this nation and carry them off into exile. One of the things that we learn, if you are familiar with Old Testament history, is that the words of Amos actually come true. The northern kingdom is defeated and they are carried off into exile. And so that should tell us something about Jonah. Jonah is what the Bible refers to as a false prophet. Not a false prophet in the sense that everything that he says doesn't come to pass. I mean, obviously, he somehow got that battle prediction correct. But a false prophet in the sense that he he claims to speak on behalf of God when he doesn't actually do so. He speaks words of comfort to this corrupt king, rather than speaking words of warning, as Amos faithfully does. And so the fact that we, in our very opening chapter, we are introduced to Jonah, we should immediately be suspicious about this character. We should immediately be suspicious about who he is and why he's here. Because one of the things that we are going to see, especially as we dive into Jonah chapter 1, is that at the heart of chapter 1 is actually a surprising comparison. We're going to be introduced to two different groups of people. We're going to be introduced to some pagan sailors and to a prophet on the run. So let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, open up with me uh, to Jonah chapter 1. It is found uh, in the Old Testament after the books of Amos and Obadiah. Uh, It's uh, found before Micah. If you need to use the table of contents, that's okay, because it is found in kind of an obscure part of Scripture. But uh, the book of Jonah, it's a short story, but it opens with these words. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Immediately, we're introduced to this narrative device of satire because the false prophet actually receives a real message. The false prophet, who hasn't heard from the, a word from the Lord in his entire career, suddenly has God show up and God says, hey, I do have a job for you. I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city to call out against it for all of its wickedness. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were enemies of the people of Israel. And God is saying, hey, Jonah, I do actually have a job for you. Now, you would expect that a false prophet in that moment is just like, man, my whole career I've been faking it. But finally I get something good. I've got a job to do. But instead of going, what ends up happening? Well, upon receiving this word, it says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Twice in a few short verses, it says that Jonah is trying to flee from God's presence. The prophet finally gets a legit assignment, and he books it in the other direction. And it's been really funny to like try and read different commentators locate where Tarshish is, uh, because we're not really sure. Uh, it was apparently on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea from where Israel was, a long ways away. Basically, what he's doing is he's trying to run to the other end of the earth. He gets a legit calling, and he flees. Now, what I love is that the narrator doesn't tell us why. We actually don't know why Jonah flees, at least not yet. We'll get to that a little bit later on in the story. But again, what's important here in chapter 1 is that when Jonah gets on that ship, we're suddenly brought face to face with a surprising comparison. Comparison between a bunch of pagan sailors and this prophet who should know better. Because the moment he gets on the ship, what we learn is that God ends up bringing a storm upon them. There was a mighty tempest on the sea. It was so violent that the ship threatened to break up. And these sailors are doing everything that they can to keep the ship from sinking. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're using all their very best skills, and it doesn't seem to avail them of anything. And then we learn something about kind of their spiritual condition. It says that they all end up crying out to their various gods. So these are pagans. All right, these are not Israelites. They don't believe in Yahweh. And, and so they're crying out to their gods, and that doesn't even seem to work. And so finally, they end up going down into the, into the hold of the ship, and what do they find? They find Jonah is passed out. So I guess that marathon uh, to Joppa was really exhausting, because here he is sleeping through this violent storm, and they end up shaking him and, and telling him to wake up, and they say, What are you doing? Why are you asleep? Get up! Call to your God! Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. You see, what we learn in these sailors that's so surprising is that these sailors actually do the right thing. That when they come to the end of themselves, they come to the end of their abilities, they come to the end of their strength and their knowledge and their expertise, they do the one thing that we all honestly should do. They turn to the Lord. They say, we we need to know whatever God it is that you apparently worship. And then later on when Jonah tells them that he worships Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, it says that the men are afraid and, and they actually go out of their way to placate Yahweh in, in as best that they can. Ultimately, in the end, what they, what they do is they cry out to God for forgiveness. You see, what's surprising is that these pagan, these rough-and-tumble pagan sailors suddenly become worshipers of the one true God. Now, I said that this, this story is important because Jonah helps us to understand what it means to truly have a relationship with God. And, and what we see right here is that what it, what's involved in worshiping and, and having a relationship with God is coming to the end of yourself. That's where a relationship with God be, begins, is when we come to the end of ourselves. You see, we live in a society where we have everything provided for us. And so oftentimes we can go about our days not really needing God because we have everything that we could possibly require. And I think that this is part of the reason you get certain people saying that religion is for weak people or for foolish people. Because we live in a society that tells us we're supposed to be independent. We're supposed to rely on our knowledge and our skill set. We don't really need God, we're really just supposed, I mean, this is just an excuse for not taking responsibility for ourselves and for our lives and and doing what's absolutely necessary. And yet these sailors, when they finally come face to face, when they finally reach their limits, the limits of their expertise, they end up crying out to him. Because the reality is, is that there will come a moment in our lives when we are brought face to face with our end. And in those moments, no amount of wisdom, skill, strength, or expertise can possibly avail us. You see, these sailors were not amateurs. If they knew how to sail from Joppa to Tarshish, it means that they were familiar with the Mediterranean Sea. That they knew how to handle its storms and its tempests. That they knew how to handle its tides and its currents and its winds. And yet here, when they are finally brought face-to-face with death, they realize none of that matters. And I think that this is part of our problem. Part of the reason that we in our society today don't seem to have a lot of room for God is because we bought into the lie that we're self-sufficient. And yet suddenly these sailors realize their idols can do nothing for them. Their gifts and their skill set can do nothing for them. The ship that they have put their hope and their trust in can do nothing for them. And so they cry out to God. See, this is important because what what God is basically saying is he's saying, I don't want to just have a relationship with people who have it all together. In fact, I want to have a relationship with the people whose lives are falling apart, who are swamped and overwhelmed by storms. Because it's in those storms that God desires to meet with us. It's in those moments that he wants to show us that his strength is sufficient for us. That he is the one who not only can calm the seas of our lives, but who will sail with us through it. These sailors respond rightly. They turn to God as the one source of hope and security in a stormy world. But That then brings us to our other comparison, and that is with Jonah. Because Jonah, the moment he wakes up and sees what's going on, does something really fascinating. The sailors ask him, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And Jonah stands there on the deck and says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, <laughs> remember that this is Satire. Because if we slowed down for a second and really thought about it, we would realize just how pompous and foolish this speech is. Okay? Because notice what Jonah doesn't do. Jonah doesn't wake up and go, Oh my goodness, uh, we're, uh, we're going to sink. Let me help and start throwing things overboard. No, he doesn't get on the deck and start tying knots to see if he can assist. He doesn't even come out and admit that he's done anything wrong. What does he do? He stands on the deck and he offers a pompous windbag sort of speech. I am a Hebrew. And I fear Yahweh, the maker of the sea and the dry land. Now here's why this speech is pompous and foolish. If Jonah actually believes that God is the God of the universe who made the sea and the dry land, what on God's green earth gives him the idea that he can run away from him? This is a pompous speech and a foolish one at that. Jonah standing up in the midst of these pagan sailors says, well, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I don't believe in all of your small, piddling little gods. I believe in the God who rules over everything. And any smart sailor standing on that deck would be like, then what are you doing here? (laughs) Why are you trying to run from God? But that's exactly what Jonah is doing. You see, Jonah shows us where not to look for a relationship with God. We're not to look for a relationship with God in our theological knowledge or understanding. We're not to look for a relationship with God in our pedigree and our current attendance in church. See, Jonah's like, I'm a Hebrew. We've always worshipped the Lord. I know all these right things about him, but see, he's missing the point. Because the reality is is that what God desires most is a repentant heart, not an overly large brain. And yet that's exactly where Jonah seems to bank his hopes on. Jesus uh, had to deal with people like this in his day. They were called Pharisees. These were people who knew the scriptures inside and out. The best of them could recite entire books of the Bible from memory. These were guys who had huge theological brains, but tiny withered little hearts. And that's exactly who Jonah is. See, Jonah is a mirror for us. He's a warning for us about what happens when we let our knowledge about God get in our relationship with God. Make no mistake, doctrine and theology can be very, very important, but only if it is in the service of cultivating a humble heart before the God of the universe. Jesus said it very, very clearly to the Pharisees of his day. He said, you guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and what you don't realize is that they all point to me. He says, all your theology, all your biblical knowledge is meant to cultivate a humble, soft heart in relationship with God. And sometimes the worst damage that's being done to Christian witness these days is by people who have all the theological right answers and yet have no love, compassion, or humility. I'll be honest, before I came to faith, these were the types of people who turned me off. People who walked around my school with Jesus t-shirts and WJD bracelets on their wrists who knew all these right answers and talked about how Jesus was a God of love, but then when they actually like, treated people who weren't fellow Christians, the way they treated us was like dirt. It turned me off to the church for a really, really long time. The greatest damage done is by pious windbags who don't know the God that they're talking about. And that's who Jonah is. And so, this story is really meant to be a reflection for us. Because what we see is that Jonah is still running. Even when Jonah finally fesses up and says, Yep, it's me, my fault. I'll tell you what you can do. You can throw me in the water. Even here, he is still running from God's presence. Because notice, at no point does he actually ask God, okay, Lord, I'm sorry I did wrong. What do I need to do to save these sailors and this ship? Because I know it's my fault. That's not what he does. He says, just toss me overboard. I'll I'll sink in the storm. You guys will be fine. He's still running. He would rather drown than go to Nineveh. He would rather drown than be obedient to God. And I think for many of us, when God actually comes and calls us to obedience and calls us to follow him, we are so hooked on our own agenda that we would rather sink than actually follow. And so the question we have to wrestle with is who are we really in this story? Who actually are the ones who are justified before the Lord? The pagan sailors or the runaway prophets? The answer that the narrator wants us to arrive at is the sailors, because they do the one thing that's needful. They turn. You see, that's what repentance means. We tend to think that repentance means saying that I'm sorry. Now, certainly, I'm sorry could be a part of that, but ultimately, in the biblical sense of the word, repentance is about turning. It's about turning from our own way and turning toward God in our uh, and turning toward God in everything, times of need and times of plenty. And that's exactly what the sailors do. They turn to the Lord. And even in a moment when they finally cave and they say, all right, we're going to throw this guy overboard, listen to their prayer. They address God by his personal name. They say, oh Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. These pagan sailors become worshipers of the Lord. The invitation in this story is to say, so where am I on this spectrum? Do I have a soft heart before my God? Or do I pridefully, arrogantly lean on my own understanding? Martin Luther, the great founder of the Reformation, at the very beginning of his 95 theses, this document which kicked off the entire Reformation, his first line is this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. What he means is that every single morning we are to wake up with a humble heart before our God saying, Lord, help me to go about your ways today and not my own. Help me not to rely on my own strength or my own understanding, but on yours Help me to go in the direction that you would want me to go. See, one of the things when people ask, like, what what does it really take to be a a Christian? What does that really mean? I actually uh, have kind of provocatively started to say, well, it's really about your orientation. Are you oriented toward God or away from him? That's the starting point. Jonah, the prophet of God, although he had all the theological knowledge in the world, was oriented away from God. These pagan sailors who still had a lot to learn were turned toward him, and that made all the difference in the world. Because you see, when we turn toward God, what we see is we see him for who he is. The God who, yes, is the one who rules over the land and the sea, but also the God of mercy and grace. He's a God who, unlike Jonah, gets into the boat with us to save us. Those of you who are familiar with the gospel stories might remember uh, this, this story about a time when some other fishermen went on a sailing trip. And in the boat was another prophet who was sleeping. But when the wind and the waves came against them and they found themselves overwhelmed and cried out, he woke up and said to the, to the storm, "Shh, be still. And rescued his friends. See, Jesus is the better Jonah. He gets into the boat willingly to sit alongside sinners, who, when faced with the storms that threaten to overwhelm, speaks quiet and peace, who doesn't lecture them or give them a word of rebuke, but when all is still, simply turns to them and says, Hey guys, it's okay. Where's your trust? When Jesus says, Where's your faith? That's really what he's asking. It's like, where's your trust? Because your trust can be in me. And the reason why we can trust Jesus with every storm of our lives is because we see the lengths that he's willing to go in order to carry us. That unlike Jonah, who wanted to be tossed in the deep in order to run from God, Jesus was willing to be cast out into the darkness in order that we might live. Jesus actually even refers back to this story when he talks about his mission and his purpose in Matthew 12. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, you can trust me because I will go into death for you. I will go through death ahead of you. And I will walk into the sunshine of eternal life and usher you into a kingdom that has no end. Jesus is the better Jonah. He is the God who enters into our world to walk alongside us, to sail and navigate life's most difficult storms, to ultimately bring peace and healing, forgiveness and new life. I'm glad that Jonah was not the promised prophet. But rather that his life points us to the one who is better, the one who is greater, the one who is humble, merciful, kind, yet also in control, powerful, and the one who rules over the wind and the sea. This morning, the invitation in the book of Jonah is to simply come to God as you are. To lay down the things that we usually rely on, and simply to be present to the Lord who calls us and desires to have a relationship with us. And so if you are counting on your theological knowledge or getting your life all cleaned up before you can have a relationship with God, then hear this clear message from Jonah. That's not what it's about. It's about simply turning toward the one who has been chasing you all along, responding to the voice that's calling, calling, And being welcomed into a loving relationship with the one who alone can calm every storm. And so it's with that in mind that I wanted to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in the midst of life's troubled seas, you come not to judge or to lecture, but you come in order to bring peace and stillness. We thank you that you come to us not when we've cleaned ourselves up, but you come in humility to broken people in order to give us new life. And so, Lord, we pray that we would lay all of our other responses and competencies, all the other things that we're relying on, down at your feet. And like those sailors, simply cry out to you. And in doing so, may we learn that you truly are the Lord of peace, who brings stillness in the midst of chaos, and who ultimately promises us a life that has no end. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.